Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. In reading in a few moments with uh, verse 12, and as we've done for the past couple of weeks, we'll probably be working at this you know, one verse at a time today. Have you ever noticed how many things in our lives today are made with molded plastic? Hello. They take liquid plastic, they either pour it or inject it through some kind of nozzle into a mold, uh, let it cool, harden, pop it out, and, you know, makes a racket when they do. And then, you know, you, you've got what's there. Just, just think about what, what all we have. You know, you parts of your automobile, uh, parts of your electronic equipment, you've got toys, uh, you may even have something like a uh, chair. Didn't wave that up there. What's going on? Is that better? All right. Yeah, they have something like a, a chair to be able to work with on that. And as usual, that's not going to work. So <laughs> there it comes. It did decide to work. <laughs> we can't figure out what's going on with that thing. So it works and then it does it, and it just comes and goes. Have you ever thought that we as believers might be a little bit like molded plastic, like liquid plastic? You know, we can be molded into some different. We can either be molded into Christ's likeness, or we could be molded into the ways of the world. Did you notice that verse of Scripture that we read from Romans earlier, right before I had my prayer? Let me share verse 2 of that again. It says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. J.B. Phillips' translation translates this way. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Now that's what the world tries to do, doesn't it? It wants to make us like everybody else. And as believers, we're supposed to be different. And the book of Revelation, Christ addresses several different churches that were in Asia Minor in New Testament times. And uh, as he did, he addressed one that was called Pergamum. Now, Pergamum was a, uh, one of those cities, and it was one of those cities that had been real early in its starting to worship the Roman emperor. In fact, in 29 B.C., they constructed a temple to the Roman emperor who at that time was Augustus. It was also a city that was a place where a lot of other gods were worshipped. Zeus was worshipped, uh, Athenaeus, there was the uh, uh, god that was sort of the, the serpent god of medicine, and that particular you know, god was worshipped there. In fact, there were so many priests for that particular god there that this was known as a medical center. And so a lot of people came to Pergamum for medical treatment. It was a place that, you know, had all of those different kinds of worship, but you had to worship the emperor. That was just the understanding in that particular location. So what do you think life would be like for believers in a city like that? What do you think the risen Christ would have to say to the believers who were in that city. 
How about let's just turn that off and we'll just go with this. You're going to have to listen instead of look today. Here in verse 12, let's begin to see what Christ had to say to them. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. Now, usually in these words that Christ has to say to these churches, they give, uh, he gives a description of himself. And here he talks about the sharp, double-edged sword. And there's a reference to that in Revelation 1, and it says the double-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. Now, why a sword? A sword was the symbol of power and authority. The Roman proconsul there in that city would have ruled with the power of the sword. So when Jesus says he has a sword, it means that he has the authority, that he's going to win the ultimate victory, and that he's going to bring retribution on those who persecute his followers. Now, why does Revelation picture that sword coming out of his mouth? It comes out of his mouth because his sword is the Word of God. He speaks and it happens. It's the only weapon he needs. After all, what happened in creation? God just spoke the worlds into being. Let there be, and whatever he named, that's what it was. So we see the power there. So Christ is coming representing himself to these believers there as the one who has power and the one who has authority. Now, what does he say to them? Look at verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. That's an interesting description for a city, isn't it? Where Satan has his throne. And notice Jesus says, I know you live there. Where all that pagan worship is, I know that you're having to try to survive in the midst of that. I know where you live. You know, isn't that a comfort to you? Jesus knows where we live. He knows what we go through. He knows what we face. The psalmist put it this way, You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. When we're going through difficult times, when we're going through struggles, when we're going through heartache, when we're trying to avoid temptation, when we're trying to live for the Lord, when it's a struggle to do so, Jesus knows. I know, He said, where you live. Where did they live? Where Satan had his throne where there was temples to all different kinds of gods except the one true God. You ever feel like you live where Satan has his throne? Where there are drug deals in the parks? Where there's corruption in the financial institutions of the nation? Where there's corruption among the politicians? Where there are gangs? Do you ever, do you ever feel like you live where Satan has his throne? where those who are supposedly the intellectual elite and have all sorts of knowledge don't have much wisdom, and so they try to dissuade us from following the moral way and the true teaching of the Bible? You ever feel like you live where Satan has his throne? Seems like it sometimes, doesn't he? Jesus says, I know. I know where you live. I know what you're facing. 
And notice what he said, yet you remain true to my name. They stayed faithful. They were faithful. He said, you did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. The believers, many of the believers in Pergamum, were willing to be faithful and to claim the name of Jesus even though it wasn't easy to do so. Even though the authorities wanted them to say, okay, you can worship this Jesus if you want to, but you've got to burn incense to the Roman emperor. And some of them are saying, we're not going to do that. We serve Jesus and Jesus only. One of them, his name was Antipas, was put to death for that. Can you imagine the pressure that put on the other believers? But notice what he is called. He said, he was my faithful witness. He was faithful to Jesus even when it cost him to be faithful to Jesus. You are my faithful witness. The word witness there in the Greek is martis. The, the word came later to be martyr, someone who's put to death for their belief. Being faithful to Jesus helps you to be a witness. Taking a stand for Jesus when it isn't easy to take a stand for Jesus helps you to be a witness to Him. People see that, hey, if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to stand up for Him, then there must be something to Him. I think I may need to investigate. Antipas was a faithful witness. But then Jesus goes on and he has something else to say to them. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Now, Balaam was the kind of the proverbial Hebrew example of a false teacher. If you want to find out about Balaam, read Numbers 22 through 24. Yeah, we're not going to read all that this morning. But you, know, you can find out about the whole story about him. And you know, Balak was the king of Moab when the children of Israel were going to go through Moab to get to the promised land after they'd been released from slavery in, in Egypt. And the king of Moab, Balak saw them coming and said, good gracious, look at all of these people. Said, they'll just overrun us. And so he hired uh, Balaam to come and to put a curse on them. And, you know, make a long story short, Balaam came, but God wouldn't let him put a curse on them. Every time he opened his mouth, you know, supposedly to curse them, he ended up blessing them. But later on, he found a way to evidently show Balak what to do to trip up the Israelites. Numbers chapter 25 says, While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods, so Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Now, where did that come from? It came from Balaam. 
Speaking of those people who had done that, they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord. In other words, there were people in Pergamum, supposedly believers in Pergamum, who were worshiping some of these pagan gods. And, you know, if you look at verse 15, it, it kind of follows up with that. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Evidently, their teachings were the same. You know, I, I think maybe the Nicolaitans were the, you know, kind of the idea that, you know, you, 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 you ought to have peaceful coexistence. You know, you've got to go along to get along. You know, if, whatever it takes for you to fit in and to not make too many waves, that's what you need to do. You know, and don't take a clear stand for the Lord Jesus. Just, just go along. Just get along with everybody. Agree with whatever they say. You know, whether it's right, whether it's wrong. Just go ahead and do that. Now, what was taking place is that like the Israelites did with the Moabites, evidently that's what some of the, the Christians were doing in Pergamum. They were going to the pagan feasts. You know, there were temples to all these gods. You could go there and they would sacrifice an animal to the gods and then they would serve it along with other fancy foods and you'd have a great feast. And in some of the time after the feast, there were temple priestesses and you would consider sexual immorality with them. Well, it's kind of like they were sleeping with the enemy literally and figuratively. They were committing sexual immorality, and they were, you know, deserting their devotion to the Lord Jesus. They weren't being faithful to Him. That kind of thing ever happened today? Do believers ever so blend in with society, so let society mold them into its shape that we act just like everybody else? Surveys show that a lot of church, church members view pornography. It's not much secret that church members sometimes fall into adultery. Sometimes the entertainment we enjoy are not wholesome things, but evil things, immoral things. Things filled with gratuitous violence. Sometimes we fall into worshiping greed. And our whole life is around getting more and more and more material things or more and more money. The Bible calls greed idolatry. Worshiping other gods falling into the habits of the people around us, letting the world mold us into its shape instead of showing the likeness of the Lord Jesus. Well, these kind of thoughts really sounded pretty good to a lot of people. You know, why, why not do that? You know, after all, we can, we can go along and we can get along and you know, we're, you know, things, things will be good for everybody. Jesus didn't see it that way. Look at what he said. Repent, therefore, 
Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. In other words, we will be disciplined. Repent. You know, from Old Testament times, God's had trouble with His people wanting to turn to the ways of the world, wanting to let the the people of the world determine how we behave. In Ezekiel, Scripture says, And you know that I am the Lord, for you have not followed my decrees or kept my laws, but have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. And that's what we do so often. And yet that's not what the Scripture calls us to do. From 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Scripture says, God's solid foundation stands firm. Sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are His. He knows us. He knows we belong to Him. But then it goes on and says, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Must turn away from wickedness. We can't live like the world lives and be pleasing to God. We can't live like the world lives and be a witness to the Lord Jesus and His saving, transforming power. Jesus came to these people who had that kind of idea and said, repent. And the the tense of the word in the Greek means now. Repent now. Change your mind. Change your attitudes. Change your behavior. Stop letting the world press you into its mold. Start becoming more and more like me. Jesus said, if you don't, I will come against you and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. In other words, if we belong to Him, and if we try to follow the ways of the world, the sinful ways of the world, then He's going to discipline us. If you're a good father, you discipline your children when they do wrong. The book of Hebrews reminds us that God is our Heavenly Father. And as His children, when we do wrong, He will discipline us. Remember how powerful Jesus' Word was? You know, He could speak and heal someone. Didn't have to touch them. Didn't even have to be in the same location. He could just speak the Word and heal them. His Word was that powerful. Jesus could speak and cast out demons. And they didn't have the authority to stand against what He said. Jesus could speak and still a storm in the midst of the Sea of Galilee. And it would become as quiet and as peaceful as you can imagine. Just through the power of His Word. When Jesus tells us He could use His Word to discipline us, you better believe it. And when Jesus tells us something to do, we better do it. His commands are not suggestions. He means stop it now when He says repent. 
He wants us to be molded into Christ-likeness. He wants us to be molded into holiness. He wants us to be molded into people who are different so that He has a witness in this fallen and lost world. But then He gives a promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. And you know the story about the manna. Children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. You know, they going through the wilderness. They got hungry. God sent manna. It just appeared every morning. All they had to do was go out and gather it up, and they had plenty to eat. That shows God's concern for His people, God's provision for His people. There's another reference to that. It's in the Gospel of John. It's Jesus reminding us not only does God provide for us materially, He provides for us spiritually. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. God supplies our material needs, our physical needs. He supplies our spiritual needs. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, my people, you don't have to go off and follow the ways of the world to get you what you need in this life. I'm going to provide it for you. I'm God. I made you. I know what you're like. I know what you're facing. I know what you live. I'm there for you. I'm faithful. I'm good. I'm loving. I'm merciful. I will help you. Jesus promises, I will give some of the hidden manna. He also says, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, not only to him who receives. Now, if you read the Biblical scholars, there's a whole lot of debate about what that means. Uh, I'll just share you know, the, the two ideas I like. One was that some, in some courts, judges had black stones and white stones, and if the defendant was innocent, held up a white stone. If he was found guilty, a black stone. You ever heard of get, about getting blackballed? Well, that's kind of the idea with that, that you know, interpretation. There was also a practice in that time that athletes who had performed well got white tickets that would ad admit them to, you know, special meals, special things in their honor, maybe, you know, special entertainment. You know, it was admission to that which was worthwhile. So Jesus is seeing through that in one way or another, you know, he's going to provide for us. He's going to honor us when we follow Him. This has got a new name written on it. Have you ever noticed that a lot of times in the Bible, when someone, you know, had, were following God, they got their name changed? Uh, Abram became Abraham, father of nations. Sarah became Sarah, mother of nations. Simon, Jesus' disciple, became Peter, the rock, who could stand up for Jesus no matter what. A new name, indicating our character, 
indicating that we've been made into what Jesus would have us to be, molded into His likeness. So we've got a decision to make. And it's not just for today, really. It's a decision we have to make each and every day that we live in this world. Are we going to let the world mold us into its likeness? Or are we going to let Christ mold us into His likeness? We get to decide. We have to decide as individuals whether we're taking the easy way out, whether we're going to follow what you know, our friends and neighbors want us to entice us into, or if we're just going to see what God teaches in His Word and follow that. We have to make that decision as individual believers. We have to make that decision as a church. You know, are we going to you know, handle things like the world does? Or like the Bible teaches? Are we going to treat people like the world does or like Jesus did? Are we going to seek to put our emphasis on material things or on spiritual things? We have to decide. We're going to be molded one way or another. And we have the freedom, the opportunity, and the responsibility to decide. And join with me, please, in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence today, we are grateful that you are our Heavenly Father, that you are faithful, that you are good, that you promised to take care of us, that you promised to meet our needs. We are thankful that you have called us to follow you. And we are thankful that you have been with us and that in many ways you've helped us to be faithful and to hold your name. But Father, we also confess that many times we've fallen short. That we've let the world mold us and shape us more than letting our Lord shape us. And we pray that you would purify us, that you would forgive us, and then we pray that you might lead us in the paths of righteousness for your namesake. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, is there something you need to repent? Turn away from. Put it in the past. Be done with it. Say, from this day forward, no more. No more am I going to let that world entice me into doing that. This morning, do you need to recommit to each and every day starting the day by saying, Jesus, through your power, today I'll follow your ways instead of the ways of the world. This morning, do you need to come to the God who loved you so much that he gave his only son 
to die in your place on the cross so that you might have eternal life. His promise to you is the hidden manna. His promise to you is the white stone. His promise to you is a new character and a new life that will begin the moment you receive Him and stretch throughout all eternity. That you receive Jesus as your Savior. Our invitation hymn this morning is 435. How will you let the risen Christ mold and shape you?